Breathe, Mets fans. It looks like Jacob DeGrom's back is okay. We talked to Grom, Mets ownership bids, and artificial crowd noise. We also chat with lifelong Met from the amazing 69 World Series champion Mets, Ed Cranepool. All that and more next on Amazing But True from the New York Post. Queens, New York. Mets take the field. So amazing. Amazing but true. Orange and blue. So amazing. Here's the pitch. New York folks. It's out of here. We got you. Welcome back to Amazing But True, our New York Mets podcast from the New York Post. I'm your host, Jake Brown, alongside my co-host. You remember him. Pitching for the Mets and on SNY, Nelson Figueroa. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and write in a nice positive review. It's Thursday, which means this one's highlighted by our guest joining us a bit later in the show. And that is longtime Mets. Spent his entire career with the New York Mets when they started in 1962 to when he retired in 1979. And he won a World Series as part of the Miracle Mets in 1969. That is Ed Cranepool. He'll join us a bit later. But first, Figgy, glad to be back. We got some stuff to get into. And we'll start it off with the big news. And that's Jacob DeGrom, who is A-OK. And thank God. It's really a sigh of relief. You And, and still you're a little worried. When you hear day-to-day sometimes are Mets you know they've been saying that for Jed Lowry for two years now it seems like day to day so you worry still that you know his back that could come back with back tightness you never know I'm gonna have a lot of that moving in the next week I'm gonna be day to day which will really be the story of my life um Mm -hmm. so you know you worried a little bit but it seems like DeGrom his MRI came back okay and We'll hopefully see him next Friday at City Field against the Braves. Uh, yeah, I don't think there's really much to panic about. Jacob DeGrom has had back tightness every year in spring training. So this year, he probably had it twice. This is the second time, of course. It was funny because a few years ago, I had talked to him about it when he had back tightness, and we, we figured out what it was. He had rented Jonathan Neese's place, and Jonathan Neese's mattress was real, real soft. Different than his mattress that he slept in at home. He wound up getting a stiff back. He didn't go on the road trip. I said he was it was a veteran move to get out of going you know, across Florida to, for the road trip. And um, he swore up and down. He said it was the bad mattress. He actually went and, and bought himself a new mattress and never had an issue again. So I don't think it's a big deal. I'd rather be cautious at this point, especially when you're talking about your opening day starter, uh, for him to miss a couple of innings of uh, inner squad game. No big deal. They're saying day to day. I'm trusting that. And uh, I'll trust it even more when I see him back out on the mound. Are you even human if you don't have a Tempur-Pedic mattress at this point? I know the <laughs> apartment I'm moving into I had to feel it to make sure, do I want to buy this kid's match or throw out mine? And it was like rock hard. It was terrible. So I'm throwing out his. I'm bringing my Tempur-Pedic in. But, I mean, how do you have anything but Tempur-Pedic? It's 2020. Listen, first of all, you touched another man's mattress. That's A. (laughs) B, you even considered keeping said mattress. My man... I will get you a mattress. Get rid of that mattress, and we will start fresh, okay? This will be Jake's uh, 2020 mattress. A lot of memories to be made. You're not keeping somebody's mattress. Yeah, there have been a lot of memories on my mattress, I'll say, over the years. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's a little flatter than it used to be, but still effective. Um, But anyway, Gaining weight, gaining weight. That's what usually happens. It's that high cholesterol as I just got back from my physical. The doctors were calling me mid-Ed Cranepool interview. Like, who's this? 718 number is it the Mets trying to get me to buy an $86 cardboard cutout 
No, it's the damn hospital telling us, you know, stop eating, you fat ass. Um, <laughs> but really, it's uh, it's all about the mattress. Glad he's okay. And, you know, if they had lost DeGrom and Syndergaard, it's over. I mean, you talk about 10 to 12 starts of Jacob DeGrom and 10 to 12 starts you're missing from Noah Syndergaard. You're missing almost half the season with your top two starters, and the Mets would not survive. I don't care how good their bullpen is. They would not survive. So they need DeGrom and his one or two earned runs or less. Every one of those starts. You talk about a 60-game season for pitchers. It's like you said on Monday, it is a 10-game season. So I think the rotation will be okay, and let's hope nothing else comes about. You lose Noah, and you talk about war right can you get a guy to be a replacement for a guy who you know pitches around a four era absolutely somebody can fill in admirably you have somebody move up in the rotation like a marcus stroman that's why you went out and got him but you're talking about jacob Degrom, the best pitcher in all of baseball so replacing him i don't care what the war number reads he's not replaceable okay there's no other feeling on the planet that when the team goes out that day and in the lineup card it says pitching is jacob Degrom. that to me is where it's all said and done however if you're only were missing him, can you get by with the other guys filling in and the four starters still being as strong as they were? Absolutely. Listen, the Kansas City Royals beat the Mets. And I will give you $100 if you can name the five starters with the Kansas City Royals on opening day back in 2015. You can't do it. You can't do it. But they wound up going all the way to the World Series. They had uh, a, a good team that Ed said today, Crediting Pool said, about winning breeds chemistry. And they were able to do it at a very high level. And it didn't matter about that starting pitching because their bullpen was so good. So the Mets are in a good situation. They have some depth in that bullpen like never before. And then, of course, Jacob DeGrom only being day to day. If he's back uh, on there, I'm not worried about missing Noah Syndergaard this year. I think Jake would be the, pl- the one piece that you couldn't replace. The other thing is ownership, and that's been big on the news. And, you know, it was first reported the other day after our show that Sheldon Adelson, who is a billion dollar, $30 billion casino guy, makes Steve Cohen look broke with his measly $13 billion, was interested. And part of that Harris Blitzer, remember those are the Devil Sixers owners, Josh Harris and David Blitzer, as he was going to join in, he had a representative say that's not true, he's not interested. So there'll be more to come from that story. I got to say, Sheldon Adelson could have starred as one of the gremlins or one of the demons in Lord of the Rings. I mean, you got $30 billion. You got to get some work done, bro. I mean, that is one <laughs> of the ugliest human beings I have ever seen. I mean, if I had $30 billion, I might get some Botox. I might get, you know, uh, slap band surgery. I'm transforming my ugly ass self to look some. I mean, look at some of the people who have transformed from all the surgeries. Sheldon Adelson, my God, he looks disgusting. So for that fact of how ugly he is, I hope he does not own the Mets. Not that Steve Cohen is Kim Kardashian. He's not looking great either. But I mean, Steve Cohen looks like a supermodel compared to Sheldon Adelson. Hey, all I know is that uh, he has a signature that is a beautiful thing to see. So either one of those gentlemen is able to sign the check and buy the team and then sign some more checks for free agents and put together a winner. Don't really care what he looks like. He could be the man behind the curtain. That doesn't matter to me. A-Rod's bid seems like he's got the population oh, of Rhode I Island talk about him. A-Rod and how ugly he is. What I'm, about that? I mean, he's a good-looking dude, A-Rod. And, and when you're partnering with J-Lo, I mean, those hips don't lie, Shakira once said in, in back in the day. Um, mm. But, you know, he was trying to be joined by Travis Kelsey and Bradley Beal and Brian Urlacher. I mean, I'm telling you, I think he's got, 
you know, my whole block of Astoria joining in on the bit. It is incredible the PR move that A Rod's trying to pull off with that bid, which is close to two billion reportedly. And I think we all know this. We know that the Wilpons don't want Steve Cohen. They would love A Rod and this crew. Maybe I'm wrong, but Steve Cohen would probably have owned this team already if they, you know, if the Wilpons had interest in him owning. They want to see who else wants to come in. And it feels like the Wilpons want to go away from us what the Mets fans want, which is a fan, a Queens native to own this team. So it is up in the air, Figgy. We don't know where this is going to go. And Steve Cohen's like locked to own this team that we said the other day is no longer the lock that we thought it might be. Yeah, well, I mean, that that's what you want to do, though, right? It's like a, the coveted free agent that's out there. You want to sit th- sit back as the agent of said free agent and you want to say, oh, there's a lot of teams interested. There's even a mystery team. That's only good for driving up the price. So I, whether these reports are true or not true, and nobody's going to go on record. It's like playing poker, right? Everybody's sitting back at the table and they're sitting back and they're waiting for somebody to make the first move somebody to up the ante somebody to go all in that's what we're waiting for and and why would the will ponds show their hand and say oh we have a favorite we'd actually like it to be a rod and and the uh professional athletes group that's being put together the bottom line is this it's going to go to the highest bidder it's going to go to i don't think there's going to be a heartstring moment where you know they really care where the guy's from and if he's a mets fan growing up as a kid which a rod was I, I just think it's going to go to top dollar, and especially in these uh, economic times, they're looking to max out whatever they can get for this franchise. And it's not just for the franchise. You're talking about a matching offer for, you know, S&Y. That to me is where it's like mind blowing about uh, what they're going to be able to get if these bids are even close to being accurate. And if that's what is being reported for the Steve Cohen, you know, everybody else is going to have to up their bid. And nobody to hear from better on that front than a man whose checks were cut by them for a couple Mm -hmm. of years and had a nice little Emmy Award action. But we'll talk more about that with Ed Cranepool, who was actually part of the 1979-1980 bid, where he got outbid his group by Fred Wilpon and Nelson Doubleday. So he knows a little bit about that. We'll talk in a few minutes with him on the field. Brad Rock and Jared Crazy Eyes Hughes. He was challenging Adam Gates for craziest eyes in New York. We'll uh, (laughs) open on the injured list. We expect that to be COVID because the Mets are mom on it. We don't know. I feel like if it were a shoulder injury or something, they probably would have said something, but who knows at this point, that's been a continuous topic here on the spring training or, you know, spring training 2.0 summer camp that one time at band camp episodes. Um, so they'll open the injury list. Those were expected to be middle relief guys. They don't need them. They could use them. They could use Brad Brock definitely at some point this season, but They'll live without him, at least for the start of the season. The cardboard cutout front, $86. I didn't do it. I don't think I'm going to do it. I think I'll live without me being seen for 30 games. It technically will be around $3 a game for your cardboard cutout. The Mets tweeted out some of them. A little creepy, to be honest, behind home plate, these cardboard cutouts, but a little less distracting than seeing, you know, a, a, a girl's boobs, I guess, being uh, <laughs> being out there, which was, happened in, what was that, the World Series, right? Yeah. Uh, was that Garrett Cole was pitching, I think, and, and the girl... Yes whoever that girl was flashed herself so that's a little bit more distracting for a pitcher than a cardboard cutout of joe schmo from long island and the mets giving back with that covid relief they've given back a million dollars in covid relief and will give back more and finally figgy they will also pipe in this you know artificial crowd noise and we wonder with that and Donzo Cador when Familia comes on the field and cheers here and there. Will there be booze? I mean, on opening day when Ozuna, Ozuna, what, <laughs> Acuna, <laughs> I got the Spanish music on my mind with Don Omar and Donzo Cudora. Uh, <laughs> 
Will uh, not Ozuna, o- Okuna be booed? Will guys be booed? Will there be artificial boos for opponents? You know what? It, it, I don't see why not. I think players, you, as a professional athlete, you've come to expect that, right? You expect the the hostile environment. I, I don't know if it can just be silence. I mean, will the silence be uncomfortable enough? Uh, I, I think even for the hometown or the hometown fans, um, some guys are used to getting booed. Like I remember when Heilman would get introduced on opening day. Boo! Oh I was one my of them. god! I was like, he didn't even throw a pitch yet, and they're all over him. Oh, 2007. After 2006, he threw oh, a pitch, and he man. threw one that lives in memory forever oh absolutely but i i think that that to me is where you know what it comes with the territory right so if there's a and it's almost going to be comical if there's a foul ball you know and down the right field line and alonzo's chasing conforto's converging and all of a sudden you know it, it hits off his glove and he drops it which should have been an easy out how funny would it be just some random little boo I think it, it's kind of needed. If they really want to make it the experience, you got to add it in. So yeah. I agree with that. There's there's both sides of that element, right? Talking with Cranepool, you know, we asked him about playing in front of some crowds of, you know, less than capacity and, and, and the difficulties with that. So it was interesting to hear his answers where for myself playing in the minor leagues coming up, it's kind of the same thing. Like you're so locked into what you're trying to do. And as soon as there's a voice and you can hear that voice, it kind of throws you off. So for a visiting team, you know, piping in a heckler. I mean, they're not expecting it. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think as long as you're not doing it while the play is going on, kind of like music and basketball. Remember, there wasn't music during the actual playing before. Now there's music up and down the court. They make a shot. They're playing a song until they get across court. And so I think uh, as an entertainment value to it, it's not for the fans. It's for the players. It's for the what normally is crowd participation. You learn to expect booze when you do bad, dumb things things and so I, i'd be interested to see what, what the team thinks of it or are they just going to go with the everything's hunky-dory all the time and rainbows ozuna that was on my mind <laughs> listening to a lot of that in spanish music i don't speak an ounce of spanish i took two semesters don't remember any of it took seven years of french what a waste language of romance uh, yeah that's gone well yeah that's gone real well for me bonjour madame sacre bleu that's the extent. <laughs> Je m'appelle Jacques is the extent of what I know. But yeah, I, I also like the element of when a guy fouls it off, when they play like the shattered glass, they do that in yes. minor league games a lot where the ball mm-hmm. will literally go over the stadium because it's small. And it just brings me back to the days when I go to like Bridgeport Bluefish games. I was actually at the game where Jose Offerman attacked the pitcher, that Bluefish nice. Ducks game where he got arrested for attacking the pitcher with a bat. So we're not going to have that. But uh, I do think uh, it's going to be intriguing. It's going to be intriguing to see these balls hit these cardboard cutouts. I think part of the reason maybe they're putting them behind home is because that netting they won't hit it uh it would be cool to hit see like you know john smith on the first base side just get hit by a ball uh, it would be <laughs> kind of funny a guy who knows about some of those empty parks and big parks was a guy who played at shea he, he experienced the 70s the late 70s couple thousand people in the building he experienced 69 and the thrills and triumphs of the mets first world championship miracle amazing mets it is ed cranepool he joins us next right here on amazing but true from the new york post 
And joining us now is a lifelong Met. There aren't many players, Figgy, who spend their entire career with one franchise and one that started with the franchise when it started in 1962, back at the Polo Grounds, ended his career with the Mets in 1979, and single season, minimum 35 at-bats, all-time pinch hit leader average as well, 17 for 35, and he is in good health now after getting that transplant. Glad to hear from him. It is Ed Cranepool joining amazing but true ed welcome to the show man how are you thanks guys i'm feeling real good uh it's been a long year you know i just celebrated the one year anniversary of my kidney and that was great and it's been a beautiful summer and i'm just laying low unfortunately with this coronavirus and got everybody uh, you know situational upset but uh, things are going good and ed you know i have a 69 mets yearbook autographed by you and i have an you know affinity for you guys at the 69 team the miracle mets i was born in 91 but i value mets history i have every yearbook in mets history and i actually have a big picture of you guys celebrating and the last out caught and 20 guys signed i believe you were one of them so i have a big collection of those 69 mets and it's a it's a miracle mets team that went from the bottom in 62 where you started in september to the promised land and you know take us back to 62 you get called up as i believe you were 17 and you retired at 34 that doesn't happen anymore either right out of high school james monroe in the bronx yeah it's like ken griffey jr status almost or <laughs> even younger and then you know you guys stink it up and then are great take us through the beginning though and and the rough patches of that 62 season and the old polo grounds well after signing out of high school you know you joined a ball club i i really expected to go to the minor leagues but i joined the mets on the california trip and my opening night in the major leagues uh, sandy koufax pitches a no hitter strikes out 13 so i knew i was going to be in for a long tough career but the first couple of years spending it with the mets was kind of frustrating myself because as a young player growing up you were always on pretty good ball clubs and uh, you know you were accustomed to winning and having fun in the game of baseball but uh, you know when you played on the Mets you were losing every day three out of four games you lost they only won 40 games the first year and the next couple of years we were much better than that so everything was a negative situation and most of the press you know, basically was negative because they were writing about how the Mets lost the ball game and in one way or another they either made a mental mistake or they made physical errors and uh, it's very frustrating because winning is the important thing in, in professional sports when you sign a contract your goal is to be in the major leagues your goal is to win a world series and be on a championship team and you're not accustomed to losing every day and uh, when you celebrate rain outs it's not a whole lot of fun <laughs> definitely uh, my first question to you ed and this is a thrill for me as well we've spoken in person before and i had a chance to meet you and i grew i grew up a mets fan brooklyn new york so being a new york kid and getting a chance to play for your hometown club now was the mets your team you know I, the 62 they started out i know you were probably a yankee fan coming out of the bronx was that a little different i was for you to you're 100 correct i was a yankee fan growing up in the bronx i mean you had the choices of the giants dodgers or the yankees and, and of course in the bronx if you didn't like the yankees you know you weren't a baseball fan so i followed them and of course they were always in championships every year so i did uh, you know i had expectations of, of playing uh, in the majors and playing for the yankees but of course when reality sets in you have a better opportunity with a young inexperienced ball club and i signed with the mets even though i worked out with the yankees and, and had a chance to sign with them uh, i felt that there was a better opportunity for me to 
get to the major leagues in a hurry. When you look back, it probably would have been better to sign with a better ball club because I would have developed in the minor leagues and became a, a better player. I really feel that uh, my career was stunted because of my being force-fed in the major leagues. You know, you're around so long, people say you're, you're over the hill when, when you're 22, 23 years old. You know, you've been there seven years and you've been in last place every year, so it's frustrating. Where if you learn your trade in the minor leagues, it makes it a lot easier to uh, participate. And, uh, you know, when you get there, you've caught up with the league and you're hitting 300 every year and then they, they you know, they see the real player. But when you hit 260 and they expect you to hit 350, you know, they're, they're disappointed in you, so it makes it tough to play. And one guy is not going to carry the load, uh, not in the major leagues. They'll pitch around you and, of course, being in experience, you have a tendency to be overly aggressive and you swing at pitchers. And the one thing I had was a great set of eyes so that when I swung the bat, I put the bat on the ball and, and, and sometimes it doesn't work out to your benefit if you're not waiting for your pitch. That's something that I noticed about you. Most you've ever struck out in your career was 71 times in one season. That's over 575 plate appearances, which is unbelievable because in this day and age, we're seeing strikeouts happen left, right, and center. I think that's something I would love to hear you speak about is the importance of putting the ball in play and playing the situational baseball. Well, I think the game has changed. You know, nowadays they're thinking about hitting home runs and and this new way of teaching hitting is this uh, launch angle and swinging up on the ball to hit fly balls. They don't run. In my day, you hit line drives, and uh, when you had two strikes, you maybe give up a little bit and put, try to put the bat on the ball and get a piece of it. And because if you have men on base, you want to advance the runners, and you don't want to strike out and not advance them. So, uh, you know, the, the, the principle of the game has changed, and I always felt I tried to hit line drives. I didn't swing up. And, of course, you know, the ballparks have changed. They're a little smaller now, and when you get the ball in the air, you've got a tendency to hit home runs, and that's what they're paying these guys for. They don't care if you strike out uh, 200 times. They figure it out and out. But meanwhile, if you have a man on second and get him a third, you have a better chance of scoring him. I think situational baseball is, is, is a thing of the past. Advancing runners, bunting, you know, hit and running, just getting guys in. Now, guys, they, they want the three run home run. And unless you got a lot of home run hitters, you know, you're going to lose some ball games because good pitching is going to stop good hitting. And that's what the Mets had in the early years when they started developing players. They developed their pitching staffs. And we had great arms. And that's so we won a lot of ball games, pitching and defense. But it affected the hitting because they didn't work on hitting. We never had a batting coach when I played. I played 18 years, and the only so-called batting coach was Yogi Berra, who was a great guy, but all he'd do is tell you to swing the bat. You know, so <laughs> sometimes sometimes you have a little trouble, and, and guys like yourself, Biggie, you know, they move the ball around, and they change speeds, and uh, they do a lot more. They don't just throw the ball down the middle of the plate because at any point, in your career, you can hit that fastball if you're geared up for it. And so it's, it has it, changed a lot. Ed Cranepool joining us, and him along with Ron Swoboda and Art Shamsky. Uh, there'll be a free video QA for fans Thursday, 4 p.m., but also you can, there's a follow up opportunity this Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern uh, with Wizard World Virtual, WizardWorldVirtual.com. Fans can uh, purchase live video, recorded video messages, autographed photos.
shows included. Uh, you can catch it on Twitch's Wizard World Virtual, YouTube, Facebook. God, there's so many damn social media platforms you can catch it on. Um, and it'll also be Roy White from the Yankees. Bobby V will be on there. Jim Layeritz, And again, you, Svoboda, and Shamsky. So make sure to check that out. You know, it's always good hearing from you guys and the team that won it first for the Mets. And really that flip of the losers and you stink to world champions. When did that kick in? Because that 69 season wasn't easy. It took you guys a while to get to the top of the standings. You were a 500 team or worse for most of the season. Um, when did you guys say, you know what, we got a shot at this thing? Because I, I can't imagine it was, you know, from the start of the year. No, no. From the start of the year in spring training, I think Gill's uh, approach to the game was for us to get to 500. We had uh, improved a little bit in 68, but in 69, he said, if you win some of those close games, you learn how to win. We're going to be a better ball club for it if everyone contributes. And we started to play pretty good baseball when we went to California and swept the California teams. And that was unusual because the Giants and Dodgers had great ball clubs, good pitching, and really they dominated us all over the years. But we swept them. We won 10 in a row. We came back to New York and we were just closing in on 500. We played Chicago and beat them a couple of ball games. And, you know, we were playing good baseball. And Gil said, hey, you guys are a pretty good team. You know, you got to start believing in yourself. And we did. And uh, we played better baseball the second half. We won over 60 games the second half of the season. So we were a great ball club from June until the end of the year. And we caught up with everybody, including the Cubs, who had such a big lead because their players got tired. And Leo had a tendency to play the same guys every day. And uh, in some cases, it's okay if it's cool weather. But when you get to Chicago, the weather is, you know, hot in the summer and you're playing day baseball back in those days. He wore them out and he had no reserves to put in and the Mets just passed him and he wound up winning the pennant by, uh, I guess, close to 10 games. And we were a great ball club and we should have won more pennants and more World Series. Unfortunately, we lost our manager two years later who passed away, Gil. But he was our inspirational leader and really, he made all the moves as a manager supposed to make to help the ball club. They don't win games on their own, but they make the moves that are important for a team to survive. And uh, Gil was a great manager. And on that front, it's funny. You replaced Gil Hodges as a defensive replacement in 62, in your first year, and the Mets' first year. And then in 69, he's your manager. Can you talk about Gil as a manager and also the fact that then and even into the 70s when Joe Torre was a player manager, there were a lot of guys who were player managers, and we never see that today. I would love to see a situation where, like, you know, David Wright came back and would pinch hit here and there and be a manager, but we never see it. So it was such a different dynamic back when you played it's difficult to do that because you know inserting yourself in key situations you know the players don't like it they obviously they want to be up uh, you know at, at, at the key time and when a manager does that I think the only one successfully was Pete Rose tried to do it and I think he, he was pretty good at it because he was a pretty good hitter to begin with he wound up with all those hits over 4,000 in his career so that wasn't a bad choice you know when he pinch hit for a 200 hitter you know Pete was a whole lot better than that but uh, playing managers are very difficult because they have a lot of things to think about during the game if you're on the field you really can't do that you've got nothing to worry about the, you know so you better retiring and that's why Joe Torrey got the job. He was ready to retire and they weren't going to be looking for other guys to be player managers. So as long as he was ready to retire, they needed the manager. And it was even difficult, you know, for him to manage the ball club because, you know, when you play with players, you socialize with them and then you turn into a manager, you have a different respect for the players and players you have for the manager. So you got to earn that respect. So sometimes it's 
becomes very difficult. But I was fortunate with Gil because when I started in 62, he uh, taught me how to play first base. He took me and molded me. And uh, then he left us and went down to Washington Manage. By the time he came back, I had played five or six years and uh, knew how to play first base because of him. And uh, he really didn't have to worry about uh, defensively me at first base. One of the things you talk about is through the beginning of your career, having to establish yourself as a, such a young player. You came up at 17. You're just a teenager still trying to get your feet underneath you in the major leagues. You finally get your feet underneath you. You make an all-star team. And, and now moving on to that next phase so quickly in your career of becoming a great pinch hitter. Can you talk about pinch hitting and how difficult it is and what preparation is involved for someone like yourself? Well, pinch hitting is probably the toughest thing to do in baseball. Number one, hitting is the toughest thing to do. Normally, you fail seven out of ten times and you go to the Hall of Fame. But pinch hitting, you're getting one opportunity. It's normally in a key situation. Uh, in my case, I always knew I was going to pinch hit late in the ball game when the game was on the line. I didn't have to worry about early in the ball game. Uh, I knew I had to face the best relief pitcher. So mentally, I knew what I was going to be doing, but I used to have to get the worked out a little bit during the half of the game. When the game was about the fifth inning, if it was a close game and I knew I was going to be used, I'd go down below in the dugout, loosen up, swing the bat, try to maintain some kind of game situation. You know, when you're in the field, you loosen up. You have a lot of things to do. When you're sitting on the bench, if you just sit there for nine innings, get a chance to pinch it, you're not going to do it. So I'd get my bat ready. I'd mentally get myself prepared, knowing who's going to come in from the bullpen and he's going to face me in a key situation. So what he's going to throw me. So I was ready to pinch it. So when they called on me in the eighth inning or the ninth inning, I didn't have a lot of warm-up to do. I was already loose and I'd go up and grab the bat and take maybe one or two swings and the pitcher would be looking at me and, and you know, he, he figured I'd been sitting there cold all day, not prepared, and maybe he could get a fastball by me and he'd throw that fastball and it'd be a base hit to right field. And, you know, before you know it, I set a record 17 for 35, which still stands after all these years. And that was 19, I believe, 74 or 75 when I set that record. So you're talking about something that's, you know, 50 years old, almost 50 years old. And it's the highest ever because it's a difficult job. But you better be prepared because if you get one pitch and it's over the middle of the plate, take a good swing at it. That might be the only good one you're going to get. I mean, if the pitcher gets ahead of you 1 and 2, 0 and 2, you're out of there. Forget about it. He's going to make a good pitch. You think he's not going to throw the ball down the middle at that point. He's going to try and hit that low outside corner or up and in or something and, and take advantage of you. So you want to hit their mistakes and get out of there. Ed Cranepool joining us, wizardworldvirtual.com, Sunday 1 p.m. for a Q&A with him, Archamsky, Ron Savota, some of the 69 Mets. And Ed, in the 70s, you late 70s, my aunt and uncle had season tickets, and I know some of those games at Shea were empty. I mean, you could hear a pin drop. We are going to have similar situation where they will be empty and there will be some creepy cardboard cutouts. You won't see mine or Figgy's face. I haven't divulged the $86 to uh, buy one. I'm thinking about it, but I don't know if I'm going to do it. But you know, you know, how kind of awkward maybe it is to have fans or have stadium with hardly any fans. Was that tough on you as a player to kind of maybe even hear the announcer to, you know, not having the motivation without 50,000 people there? There's two cases going. You know, you need the motivation of the fans. They get you excited when they're cheering you and getting behind you in the ball club. And that's why there's the home field advantage, they call it. But when it's a, a, a small crowd, it's terrible to play at the ballpark for the simple reason that you can hear the hecklers when 
they start screaming at you because there's nobody in the stands to muffle some of that noise. So now when they're going to be playing, there is going not going to be any noise. There's nobody going to be in the stands. They're not going to get the motivation for the fans getting behind them and, and, and rooting them on and in a key situation pulling for the players and cheering. I used to love the fact that when they when I pinch hit, the fans would start chanting when I came out of the dugout, Eddie, 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 you know, and by the time you get up to the plate, you know, you're all geared up and you're ready to go and now you're facing the pitcher and you're on an even keel with them. But the, it's going to be a difficult thing. The only time I ever had a similar situation was when the Mets made a goodwill trip to Japan. We played in Hiroshima, played a ball game. We played nine innings of a ball game, an exhibition game over there, and it was filled. There was 50,000 people in the stands. They never made a word, a peep, for nine innings. And it was the most eerie situation to go to a whole ball game and not hear anybody, you know, participate. So these guys are going to have to make an adjustment, and it's going to be difficult, I think. I think the fans, especially in New York, who are great baseball fans, and they know the game, and they appreciate their team, and they love them, you know, rally behind that, you know, and, and it really motivates the guys. So that, that little incentive is going to be missed, and I just hope these young guys can play through it because they've got uh, seven or eight really good young players that they can build off of. So the Mets really have something. They have a decent pitching staff, you know, and uh, they could be there for a short series like this, 60 games. I hope they get off to a good start like they did two years ago. You know, I think they were 12-1 and one or something like that. You know, you're going to win the pennant in a hurry. There's not going to be any uh, asterisks on that it's the season. I don't care when you win. I want to win. You know, take that trophy home. Absolutely. And I, I think one of the things that you said earlier on is about that 60 games, those last 60 games of that 69 team where you figured found yourselves as an organization, as a team, and, and realized what it took to take it to that next level. Right now, we're seeing that 60-game season – and it's basically the second half of a normal major league season where you do say, okay, we've had some bumps and bruises in the beginning. We've got to be able to turn it on and get to the next and find a way to play better baseball. You talk about a team coming together. Do you believe that chemistry breeds winning or winning breeds chemistry? Well, I think winning breeds chemistry. You know, people get along a lot better when you win. You you can it motivates you to get out to the ballpark earlier. You know, you can sacrifice things and and not take it personally because you're doing it for the good of the team. So if a manager asks you to switch positions or change things, you know, you you can accept things because you're winning. When you're losing, you know, you're always griping. You're mad at the manager. You're mad at everybody. You're not playing. You have a lot of lot of complaints. So winning is the important thing in the major leagues. And, of course, if they win this year in the short season, these same guys are playing together and they've played the minors together. And that's one of the advantages of this manager. He does know these players and they respect them from playing for them in the minor leagues. They're going to be building for the future. They could they could have a string coming down the road with some of these guys. Get the Syndicate back next season, you know, that's a, that's a big plus. That's like, you know, getting a, a premier player back. He, he could be outstanding. I wish I had his arm. You know, at 98 miles an hour, you know, I, I charge the mound tomorrow, you know, without ever pitching a ball game. I mean, because, you know, I figure it out how to get these guys out. That's a potential. So the Mets could be good for a number of years. It's a matter of playing together, winning, and enjoying themselves out there. So they're going to do it without fan, but I hope uh, comes down the stretch in September you know, some of the fans, including myself, were able to go to the ballpark. And on the fans' front, we have ownership on our mind. And the big story is 
Is Steve Cohen going to buy this team? Is this guy that looks like a Lord of the Rings character who's worth $30 billion, the casino billionaire, is he going to join in with the Harris Blitzer bid? A lot of people don't know that you were part of the groups that offer losing bid to Nelson Doubleday and Fred Wilpon back in 1979. Can you take us back to that time? And also, what do you think of the Wilpons? Are you fans of them? Do you think it's time for them to move on? What's your thoughts on that? Well, that's up to them what they want to do. Uh, am I a fan of the Wolfons? I respect them as businessmen. And, of course, they were very helpful in me getting uh, securing a, a kidney last year. Jeff was very good to me. He got the press uh, surrounding me, and we got a lot of publicity. And I really achieved that my one goal was to get a kidney. So I, I have to respect them, and uh, I appreciate what they did. And, you know, if they choose to sell the ball club, I, you know, I hope they get a good deal. They want to win. I, I don't believe any ownership that takes – uh, obligation on like this wants to lose. They're baseball fans. They've been their uh, baseball fan. Fred has been a fan his whole life. He loved the Dodgers. He followed them and because he was able to pick up the Mets very cheaply so it might be a great opportunity to sell them and you know take your profits and run. I'm sure they're trying the best they can to put the best team on the field and sometimes you know finances get involved and you know you're forced to sell but um, you know I, I wish him good luck and Steve Cohn uh, I hope he gets the ball club I think you know, he's a big baseball fan and I think he wants to uh, own the ball club and he wants to make a good deal so it's it's up to him but he's got some work to do but I hope he gets an opportunity. A-Rod I think should stay with the Yankees and he's got enough things worrying about his fiance or his girlfriend or whatever you want to call him. <laughs> You know, take care of her. You know, I think there's a lot of showmanship, you know, but um, I'd like to see Steve Cohen and, you know, let him do something. I think there is some, and you could agree or disagree, some value to having a fan. And if you were to have won that bid with that group, having a former player be part owners. While the Wilpons maybe want them to win, it's not the same as having a guy from Great Neck who's a diehard fan or a guy who played his entire career owning the team. I think us as New Yorkers and the pride that we have in ourselves, we want someone who's like that. We don't want a casino billionaire. We don't want the owner of the Sixers or the Devils. We want a guy who knows they want to win and they're going to put up the money to win. Well, that's what I think Steve would do and I think uh, he has the right uh, approach to it. But let's see. You never know what's going to happen. I, I thought we had an opportunity back in, in the 1980s at the ball club but uh, it was sold to Mr. Doubleday and Pickett and that group and, and Wilpon. And um, I was going to be involved back then so let's see what happens you know we wish all these guys good luck and hopefully the Met fans benefit from a new owner if that's to be and uh, they have a winning team I, I'm just picturing a, like an, a Bro I don't know if you know the show Brockmire but you on one side and Fred Wilpon on the other duking it out to own the Mets that would be reality TV like no other if that were happening today I'd love to see it we'll see what's going on hopefully things <laughs> happen and the Mets will benefit at the end of the year Listen, I, I want to thank you very much. I, I can say from a, a kid who grew up in Brooklyn, idolizing uh, the 69 Mets and the 86 Mets, of course, uh, having to see you guys get uh, your respects due at the 50th anniversary and see you guys all come together. That was such a special moment to hang out with you guys in the suite. To end this interview, I would love to hear what was the biggest thrill for you seeing those guys all together once again? Well, I always look forward to it and I've been very friendly. I room with Spoder and he's doing okay now after his uh, problems. He had some surgery and I, Artie Shamsky is a New Yorker and I see him on occasion and uh, we're very friendly and you know we've always had a good group of guys. A very close-knit family and, and that's why the Mets uh, group stayed together. 
together. Cleon Jones is from Mobile, and he's great with us. So we have a good time, and we look forward to always meeting with these guys. So I'm looking forward to uh, this afternoon uh, talking to Ronnie and, and Art and even Bobby Valentine, who came up at the end of my career. And, uh, you know, how hung out with us. Uh, it's always good to see the guys. So thanks for having me on, Sally. And I'm glad you were a fan when you started and you had a great career in New York. Thank you, Ed. And yes, wizardworldvirtual.com. Catch them Thursday afternoon and Monday afternoon as well. And thank you for signing my 69 Mets yearbook and for all you did as, you know, being one of the faces of this franchise. I appreciate you coming on. Okay. Look forward to seeing you in person. Bye bye now. And that's a wrap for episode 10 of Amazing But True, our New York Mets podcast from the New York Post. Thanks to Jake for producing the show. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get podcasts. If you're using Apple, please give us a five-star rating and write in a nice positive review. We appreciate your support. For former Met, Nelson Figueroa, I'm Jake Brown. We'll be back on Monday as we get you ready for opening day on Friday at City Field. Stay safe, folks. We'll talk to you then.